today we're going to look at uh, this kind of this closing up idea of Jesus and the Pharisees and the people who believe him and the people who don't believe him. And then from this point forward in the book, we're really going to be dealing a lot with Jesus' interactions with his disciples on the night that he would die. And then his own crucifixion and resurrection. And so this is kind of the beginning of the end of the book, even though we have several chapters to go. And so as we do that, let's consider this passage really in this, this chapter as a whole as kind of a pivot point in the book. So before we do that, before we come to this text, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be here among us, that you would guide us as we go to it, um, as people who will twist your words, as people who want these words to only give us glory and benefit us for the wrong reasons. And so we are sinful and we need your help, your forgiveness, your mercy, your guidance as we come to your word. Open our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see the truth therein. Convict our hearts of sin that we might know you more and that we might be like you more. So, Lord, again, open this word that we might see it, that we might hear it, that we might live by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so it's been a few weeks since we've been together for vacations and several things. And here we are in John Chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 34 through 50. As I read this, it kind of reminded me of the end of the school year there at Murray High where I teach and also at Murray State where I had classes this past semester and many, many thousands of others had classes. And it reminds me of this finals week and the whole finals time. At Murray High School, we kind of have this finals three weeks where we have all these different standardized tests and different things, and fear, and the fear that is associated with final exams and with grades and different students' experiences in different kinds of ways. For some students, there is zero fear, and mostly because they kind of live in this fantasy land where their mom lays out their clothes and the real world really doesn't matter. That's my high school freshmen that kind of live that way, most of them anyway. They don't see their grades as a means to this next step in life. Therefore, for better or worse, they really aren't bothered by them. They really don't see them as a, as a thing. When they get to the end of the year and they failed my class, they're like, how did that happen? I'm like, you know, you remember August through April? Yeah, that happened. But they don't. They really don't remember those months. Um, the other stream is the ones who believe that final exams and their grades are some kind of gargantuan beast that lords over them, and it roams the countryside, seeking whom it might devour. And these students stay up really late at night, and they seem to be up always just, just barely one step ahead, and they're completely stressed out in the process. Even the smartest and brightest students who really don't need any of that effort feel this way. And now here am I on the other side of this all, and I'm like, I don't worry about finals at all. Uh, I just don't. But as I watch them as I watch these students I see the folly both in both this lack of worry and this complete worry because there's this freight train coming at them this is what I tell my 14 year old freshman and this freight train is called real life and it's barreling at them and it makes this finals beast very small in comparison 
And I said to a student, who, who this student claims to be a believer, and she would regularly ask me questions about the faith, and she was really stressed out about her finals, and I told her that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of finals, not the fear of anything else, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I said that to her, that when she was stressed and when she was overwhelmed about her finals, when she was afraid of her grades and all these different things, and I explained that when we understand the power of our God and His holiness, our fear of Him orients everything else in our lives and helps us direct all of these other situations in our lives, whether it be finals or something much worse than that. And then we begin to see how small everything really is. It helps us to prioritize our lives. Again, she's 14. So I don't know how this verse will affect her. But what we do with that concept, this idea of the fear of the Lord, is very important as we see how the gospel works in our lives. And we're going to see a very similar story today in this text. We see a group of new believers, and these new believers, they fear the Pharisees. And this is what's keeping them from professing their Lord. Essentially, the fear of man has replaced the fear of God. And this group is compared with those who don't believe at all. And here again in this book, we're confronted with this idea of belief versus unbelief. And we're going to study that and look at it. Because in this time, we're given a short commentary by the Apostle John on what that means. And he takes us to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 6, the passage that we've looked at at length today, which is really good for that. And so this is going to show us the source of that unbelief. And so with that, we're going to consider two main ideas, the unbelief of the people and then our own struggle to believe as believers. So with that, let's stand together as we read the text, John 12, 34 through 50. John 12, 34 through 50. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done, many, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say this, I say the Father has told me. Amen. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So last time we were together, we looked at the passage before this. And remember, Jesus was speaking about what it means to be glorified in his death, what it means for us to follow him in that, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus talked about how he would be lifted up in his death. Probably a nod to the type of death that Jesus was going to die, obviously, on the cross, being raised up on the cross, but also how his death would glorify his name, and that he would be like the standard that, that he talked about in chapter 3, that, that was lifted in the wilderness so that the people could look on and be saved. And so the people respond to this. They're in verse 34 and following. They respond to this. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? Now, they knew the idea of what the Son of Man was, but they were looking for the actual person. Who is this Son of Man? We understand the idea of the Son of Man, but who is he? Where do they get the idea from? Well, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 real quickly. And this will ground us today. Daniel chapter 7. And if you've done any study in Daniel, you know that it's a fascinating book with lots of pictures of images of different stuff and beasts and all that kind of thing. And here, nestled in these pictures of beasts, we see this little text. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read it for us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His, dominions, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when we are seeing this idea of the Son of Man, this is where they're drawing that from. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man a lot in the Gospels. This is where he's drawing that from. Daniel seven thirteen and 14 is about Jesus. And for a greater context here in Daniel 7, understanding where this is coming from, the people of Israel are in exile, and these prophecies kind of serve as a bastion of hope for the people. That God is still in control of history. That God is still in control of his people and their fate. And when we read Daniel chapter 7, I don't think we're reading about missile treaties and ISIS and Russian 
attacks on Israel and whatever it's being interpreted as nowadays. But these words were for a people of God in exile who were looking for a savior. And so here, nestled in this chapter, talking about beasts and horns and kings and all these different things, we have this word about the Son of Man, a term, again, that Jesus attributes to himself often in the Gospels. So the people of Israel still longed for this. You have to understand that Jesus is talking here in John 12 to these people, and all around them are Roman centurions, and they long for redemption. They long for a Savior. They wanted this Son of Man to come in and wreck their enemies. That's what they wanted. They just didn't know that their real enemies weren't the Roman centurions that were surrounding them. Their real enemies weren't flesh and blood at all, but were sin and death. And that they'd finally be destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of this passage follows from this question concerning the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? And who the people then say that he is? And so we have this divide of unbelief and belief. And so the first point is the unbelief of the people. Jesus says to them, look at verses 35 and 36. The light is among you. A little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Walk with me, is what he's saying. Walk with me, so that you can be sons of light, that you may believe. Remember that he has done this for his disciples, for the many that he has come in contact with, and they've walked with him, that they may follow him, that they may become sons of light. All of his words... All of his actions are leading to this point that you might believe. Follow me so that you might believe. It's essentially what Jesus is saying here. And so we get this follow-up to that there at the end of 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. Though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. He departed, he hid himself. Again, this is not yet his time, but his time is very close. And he had done all these works, and we've read about all these works that he's done. And yet they still did not believe. And now, what's awesome here is that John gives us a testimony, a commentary, as it were, of what Jesus is saying about why that is. Why do they not believe? And so turn with me to Isaiah 53. This is this first passage that John is quoting. He says that they don't believe so that prophecy might be fulfilled. Well, what is this prophecy? The first one that he gives us is in Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them, or before him, like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So, John is attributing this passage to our Lord Jesus. We know that Isaiah 53 is, is all about our Lord Jesus, as many apostles following continue to quote this passage concerning him. And again, there's so much here, and we could spend a ton of time just in those three verses. But what's the idea here? Well, we can get this in John chapter 1. What he said in 1, what did he say? He was in the world. He was there in the world. The people didn't notice him. He wasn't much to see, is what Isaiah is telling us. The world was made through him. He was the creator, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was despised. He was rejected among them. We see that right here. And so why do they not believe? He was despised. He was rejected. He was rejected by those whom he came to save. And it seems absurd, but understand this, brothers and sisters, we were once numbered among those people who rejected him, outside of the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what does John say, very, the very next thing, verse 39? Therefore, they could not believe. What does he mean? They could not believe. Is there any kind of nuance here? Is there any kind of like thing that we can read into here? Not really. They could not believe. They were unable to believe. One time I was in a debate with a man who was um, debating me because of my uh, Calvinistic beliefs, and he finally was upset and just said, well, the Apostle John wasn't a Calvinist. And I said, you're right. He wasn't, but Calvin knew well the Gospel of John. They could not believe. This is not an isolated comment that we see here in John that we had to like deal with and maybe kind of interpret away. But this is all over the book. They could not believe. And except here, we are given another reference to help us. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. And we've read the first part of Isaiah 6, which I think is very good to help us kind of root ourselves in what we're about to read. Because in the first part of Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes in the temple, like we just read, and he is cleansed of his sin. The angel put this hot coal up to his lips. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, the angel burned his lips as a symbol of this repentance. And the Lord says... Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who will go with this message for us? And Isaiah walks up and he says, Here am I, send me. And this is often quoted. We hear this quoted all the time. Here I am, send me. But we seldom read on what's going to happen once he's sent. And that's where we get into verses 9 through 13. And let's look at this together. And he said, Go... And say this to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes 
and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord, how long do I give them this horrible message that they aren't going to be able to believe? And he said this, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. This is pretty terrible words. They could not believe because he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so that they could not see, so that they could not understand. And before we think that these are horrible words from Isaiah, let us remember that we read many words just like this in the New Testament from the mouths of our Lord himself. What does he say? Narrow is the way. Few will enter. He also says there in that later in that same chapter in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these great things? And the Lord will look at them on that day and he will say, Away from me, I never knew you. And so again, John tells us why he wrote these words. Why did he write these words? Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did he see? He saw our Lord Jesus in the temple that day, his robes filling the temple with glory. And that this Jesus would come and he would do many miraculous things. He would do many incredible things. And there would still be people who would not believe. And so hear this, brothers and sisters. This isn't an idea of they're not being convinced. Well, maybe if we were just a little more convincing, we could get them to believe. This isn't that our Lord Jesus wasn't convincing enough when he brought a dead man out of the tomb. Or that when he stood on a boat in the lake and he preached the kingdom to them. Or when he stood on a boat in the middle of the storm and said stop and it did. It wasn't that the Lord wasn't convincing enough when he was here on this earth teaching them about himself that he was the Savior. And it's not that he wasn't using the best techniques and presuppositional apologetics or that he wasn't doing life with them appropriately or whatever the newest kind of catchphrase is with that discipleship evangelism thing, or the reason that they didn't believe was somehow mired in our own sin and our own trouble with evangelism. No, the reason that they didn't believe is because they were dead in their sins and their hearts were hard. And what did Jesus say? A man could rise from the dead and they still wouldn't believe. And so let's think about this. Where does that leave us, brothers and sisters? With the same idea of Isaiah saying, go, send me, or here I am, send me. Where does that leave us when we want to be sent? And knowing that the world is hard in its sin and will not and cannot believe. To me, it's a very freeing message. And why is that? Because we are free to preach to a dying world 
because we know that out there are people that the Lord has chosen to be his. We know that. How do I know that? I'm one of them. I know there are others who can hear the message and be saved because the Lord came to save his people from their sins. And you know what he's chosen to do that? He's chosen the foolishness of preaching to be a vessel to deliver his message. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 20 through 25. And I remember as a young believer hearing this that, that phrase, the foolishness of preaching, and remember thinking, that's an odd thing to call preaching, foolishness. This is where it comes from. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, or through the foolishness of preaching, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is our hope. Even in a world that seems desperately wicked to us, and just turn on the news, it's, it's just crazy. We want to run. We want to just leave. Come, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's an okay prayer to pray. But while we're here, we know that even though the world seems crazy wicked and seems like no one's listening to our message and that our message is just falling on deaf ears and even more and more being made fun of and being persecuted, we know that our preaching of the gospel, that is foolishness to the, to, to the wise man of this age because their wisdom is tied up in the world. Their wisdom is tied up in their own good works. We know that our preaching will yield its intended results. And that's a great comfort to me. Even as I read here in John that they could not believe. I could take that and just completely be sor sorrowful. I could take that and be sad and run away and hide my message under a bush. But no, I'm going to take it and I'm going to preach it because there are those out there who will hear and who will listen and who will be saved. And so let me encourage you with that. But also, let's consider our own belief. Because here we have this struggle to believe, and we see this here with the people who were afraid to believe. Because we read that these authorities believed in him. That nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So again, let's not be quick to judge here, because I think we've all been in this place. It might be easier for us to say, well, they should just stand up for what they believe. That might be easy for us, 
because I don't think this is necessarily a thing that they're being made fun of, or they're being rejected, or even that they were going to get thrown out of the temple. This is a much simpler issue. This is a heart issue that isn't easily quantified by any kind of visible actions that we have or thoughts. And John really captures this there in verse 43 of what's going on here in his commentary on this, on this uh, event. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Their motivations were to do what? Please man rather than please the Lord. They were seeking the praise of man rather than seeking the glory of God, and therefore they were afraid. And we're all guilty of that, every one of us. And I think this is one of the great struggles in our belief. The idea that someone might think ill of me, and so I had to keep it to myself. And we all have this twin, some of us less than others, that someone might disagree with us. And we don't want that, and so we're just going to go along with everyone. And that doesn't mean that we kind of... Uh, capitulate or that we, you know, uh, mix our, and some people do, they kind of water down their own Christianity. It could just mean that we just don't tell anybody who we are. And we mix in so convincingly that no one really even knows who we are, that we're Christians, that we're set aside, that we're a holy people because of this fear of man. And let me share with you this, and I haven't been alive very long, in the grand scheme of things, but I've seen this, and a lot of you have seen this too. This fear of man is how churches fall. It's how holy men and women of God fall. This is how doctrine is twisted so that the Word of God becomes just a book of stories rather than words of life and salvation. If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then what is the fear of man? Absolute folly. And it leads to death. And so what are our motivations? Why do, we want to be, why do we want to satisfy men rather than satisfy God? Because approval becomes this idol to us. And like any idol or like any false god, it demands things from us. And we bow to it rather than bow to the one true God. And the consequences of not bowing to this idol of approval are what? Loss of friends, being seen as odd or awkward, loss of um, some kind of business opportunity or some kind of status, your reputation. It could mean lots of things in lots of different contexts. If we don't seek the approval of man, we could lose something. And in the context of a church, it could mean having a small church we're all familiar with. In the context of a family, it means not doing what the, the cool families are doing because we want to seek the satisfaction to serve the Lord rather than serve man. In a job, it could mean losing a promotion or worse. The consequence for not satisfying the God of approval is that you will not always be approved of by man, just like our Lord Jesus wasn't always approved of by man. So in verse 44 and 46, he goes on. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sent me sees him who sent me. And I have I come into 
the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In Christ, we see the world as it is. We see the idols that we worship as they are. We are, are they are no longer clothed with nice things. They no longer look nice, but we see them as agents of destruction. And so we need to see this idol of approval as a destructive thing. And he goes on, verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So again, we're reminded that his words are our own ultimate judge. Not the approval of man, which can never satisfy. Any false god is unable to satisfy. We can never do enough for it. We can never give enough to that God. We'll always want more. You can never be approved of by man enough. You'll always want more of man's approval. Just turn on the TV and watch celebrities. They're so full of themselves, but yet they want more of that. So we can kind of get a picture of our own hearts just by looking at them. The ultimate end of that, I think. However, our true God, our Lord and Savior, is satisfied with us. Why is that? Why is it that this false God is never satisfied with us, but yet the true God of the universe, whom we still don't ever please, really, because we're always seeking to please ourselves and we're always seeking our own glory, why is it that the true God of the universe is satisfied with us? Because of Jesus. Jesus did it for us. So who should we fear? The one who could destroy us. Who? What did Jesus say? Don't fear man, but fear the one who can destroy your soul in hell. But why didn't he? Why doesn't he? Because of Jesus. And again, it might be easy to place ourselves saying, oh, well, I don't really struggle with this. But we all do to one degree or another. We all seek the approval of others because we are convinced that by having the approval of man, whether it be for money or politics or education or our children or whatever it is, that when we have that approval, we can finally be happy. And again, it's like chasing a rainbow. There's just no end to it. You never, there's never a pot of gold because the, the rainbow doesn't really end. It's kind of a trick. And so, brothers and sisters... Run to the one who is completely satisfied in you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the righteousness of Christ, you are now in perfect standing with the God of the universe. Even when you're afraid of man, even when you're like these Pharisees who wouldn't confess, he is completely satisfied in you because of what his son did on the cross for us. And so for the students, again, like these grades and college, or whether it's for us, our jobs, our kids, one day it's going to be our health. It doesn't matter. There's always going to be something that we're going to worry about. There's always going to be something that's failing. There's always something to be afraid of. The point is, we'll never have enough of these things in our lives. They're going to constantly demand more. But our Lord God in heaven, however, is completely satisfied with us. Compare that to the unbeliever. 
Think about the unbeliever who's desperate to find a savior and can't. You can't, or you can get this idea of living in the darkness as the unbeliever does, feeling around in the dark for anything, for anyone that can save them, constantly seeking the approval of others, seeking the approval of anyone who will just take them. But we have a message of hope for all of these folks, one that says, here is your Savior, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We have a message that can deliver them from this state of bondage, from this state of constantly seeking the approval of others. We have a message that says here, he's approve of, he approves of you, and you don't have to do anything. You just have to call upon his name, and you'll be saved. And this same message is for us, brothers and sisters. We have to remember that we no longer live in this state of fear. But like these new converts, these, we, don't, we no longer live like these new converts who are afraid of the Pharisees. We have nothing to fear but the Lord. and He's good. He's good to us. And so let us fear him, because in this fear it leads to all wisdom. And I think in this fear it will also lead us to tell others more about him and where they can find their Redeemer. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us with this fear, constantly needing approval of men, constantly needing approval of others. But yet we have the approval of the one, the Almighty, God of the universe, the creator of all things, because of what you did on the cross for us, Jesus. And so help us with that. Help us to live in that and help us to go out into this dying world and tell others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.